Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 549 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories. Publishers Weekly says, Visceral settings and robust characters will have readers marveling at how much Kirtley is able to fit into a limited page count. For SFF fans with no time to sink into a doorstopper, these concentrated doses of genre goodness will hit the spot. And Kirkus Reviews writes, Kirtley employs sharp, concise prose that complements his puckish sense of humor. The author's passionate voice breathes life into this wonderful array of tales. So again, the book is called Save Me, Please, and Other Stories, and it's available now on Amazon.com. And today on the show, we'll be discussing the movies Being John Malkovich, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Anomalisa, and I'm Thinking of Ending Things, all of which were written by acclaimed screenwriter Charlie Kaufman. And this will include spoilers for all of those movies, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Andrea Kale, making her 30th appearance on the show. She's a graduate of the Odyssey Writers' Workshop, and her short fiction appears in the Writers of the Future anthology, Fantasy Magazine, and Lightspeed. She's been a television writer, producer, and script supervisor for shows such as Late Night with Conan O'Brien, The Chew, and WWE's Monday Night Raw and Friday Night SmackDown, and she's currently a writer for Pixelberry Studios. So, Andrea, welcome to the show. Good to be back, Dave. Then next up, we've got Matthew Kressel, also making his 30th appearance on the show. His novel, Queen of Static, the follow-up to his groundbreaking novel, King of Shards, is available now. And he recently launched a newsletter of writing advice at outerdeep.substack.com. Together with Ellen Datlow, he hosts the monthly Fantastic Fiction reading series in New York City. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Good to be here. And also joining us today is Tom Gerenser, making his 28th appearance on the show. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Galaxy's Edge and in books such as New Voices and Science Fiction. He's the author of the business book Think Like Google and the short story collection Intergalactic Refrigerator Repairmen Seldom Carry Cash. And his popular science book How It's Made, written for the Discovery Channel, is out now. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. I'm excited to be back. Okay, so let's start off with Andrea. And have you tell us about your history watching Charlie Kaufman movies. (laughs) Um, Well, the first Charlie Kaufman movie I ever saw was Being John Malkovich. Um, I think probably everybody's is. Um, It it was huge when it came out. I think, what, 1999? Yeah. Um, And it blew me away. I, I must have seen it in theater um and it was so different and so funny and so smart that i was like wow this this guy it might have even been the first time i was like it was it that the movie was all about the screenwriter and not so much about the director because you know movies are usually a film by so and so and it's usually the the director but this movie was about specifically the screenwriter and um and it just blew me away and then i think the next one i saw was probably eternal sunshine these are probably it probably an exact uh years you know the order they came out and um eternal sunshine probably became one of my favorite movies uh and then 
I think maybe I've seen it adaptation and I, I, I hadn't seen the other two movies that we we're talking about today. Um, probably adaptation was the last one I saw, which of course is also fantastic and hilarious and innovative. Um, and yeah, the, I, this was the first time I'd seen Anomalisa and I'm thinking of ending things, uh, which I mean, before we get it, you know, I don't want to get into it, but we're a much different experience than like Eternal Sunshine, which was the height for me of Charlie Kaufman's writing. Yeah. Uh, well, so how about uh, Matt? What's your history with Charlie Kaufman movies? Uh, it's pretty similar. Um, I I definitely had seen Being John Malkovich and Eternal Sunshine: A Spotless Mind, um, and I also saw adaptation. I I didn't see um, John Malkovich in the theater. I I remember uh, watching it on video. I think someone had recommended the movie to me. I don't remember. And I got a bunch of friends together. I'm like, let's watch this movie and get baked and watch this <laughs> this film. And I remember loving it. I remember thinking like, holy cow. And not just because of all the trippy stuff that happens, but it was just like the movie just gets weird mm. and doesn't hold back. And it mm. just go, it just keeps going forward and forward. And um, it also has like, and I know we're going to get into it, but like I thought a particularly uh, haunting ending, uh, mm. just, just the way it ends. And, and there was just a certain uh, brutality about, about the ending that uh, stuck with me. And I hadn't seen it uh, since then, probably watched it on video around 2000 or something. Um, and I just, I don't often remember the plots of movies very well, but this one, for some reason, I remembered like 95% of it. Like mm -hmm. it just really stuck with me. There's something really compelling about the story. And, and I, and I found it really funny too. And, mm -hmm. uh, Eternal Sunshine, I remember uh, specifically going to the theater with uh, some friends of mine who uh, I was in a, I'm still in a writer's group with them. And uh, I remember going to see it with them and uh, again, just, just being kind of, kind of blown away uh, by it. Um, uh, and the other two films I, I just watched for, for this podcast. Um, but yeah, like Charlie Kaufman was, it was a, certainly a, a name that uh was very popular at the time i you know i i don't know if i was as obsessed with the writers of films at the time uh as andrea was <laughs> but but i i do remember being very conscious of being oh yeah that's a charlie kaufman film that's a charlie kaufman film so it was certainly a thing at the time mm -hmm. and how about tom what's your history very similar, except that so so I yeah I had seen being John Malkovich either I don't remember if it was a theater or not, but I remember being completely blown away by it and just absolutely loving being like this is absolutely my style of humor. <laughs> I love this weird like off the wall surrealist, but really funny and and really tied to real life stuff. And uh, and then I saw adaptation years later and loved that. And for some weird reason, I may, I just never watched Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, even though I knew the premise. I knew it was Charlie Kaufman. Is it Kaufman or Kaufman, by the way? Does anybody Kaufman know? Kaufman, as far as I know. Kaufman, Kaufman. okay. Okay. So, so I, uh, you know, I loved him and I, I, loved, I knew I loved his, his movies. And for some reason, I, and I loved, you know, speculative fiction. And I knew that was speculative fiction. And for some reason, I just 
never watched it. I don't know how that happened. I'm always like, I always find myself like, oh, nothing to watch. And <laughs> I don't know why I never was like, oh, I should watch this. But uh, so I hadn't watched it until, until, you know, just before, just like this week, last week. And, um, and the same thing with his other movies. I hadn't seen any of those other movies. So, uh, so yeah, I love him. think he's an awesome, awesome writer and uh, just for some weird reason managed to escape from Eternal Sunshine. Maybe I watched it and my mind was wiped. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have also been aware of him because he was a TV writer um, before he started writing films. He wrote for, um, I'm pretty sure, the Dana Carvey show. Yeah, yeah. Um, and worked with Robert Smigel, who is... Oh, yeah, uh, he's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, with who I worked with. So I know. Oh, you Robert. did. Oh my I worked gosh. with Robert. Yeah. 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 For years at Conan. Um, yeah. wow. Oh, wow. That's so, great. uh, yeah, I think I'm probably was aware of who he was because of that as well as, mm -hmm. you know, he's well, for yeah. anybody who doesn't know Robert Smigel. He is uh triumph, the insult comic dog. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which one of these buttons calls your parents to come pick you oh, up? Oh, that would, that that legitimately was the best line of all time. It was. It, it was. You'd so have good. to explain it, but it was a it was a remote we did where he sent uh, Triumph to talk to people in line for the new Star Wars movie, <laughs> who were all dressed up in cosplay. Yes, dressed up in costume. And so, if if anybody wants to go out and just Google that to watch it, it's legitimately one of the funniest things we ever did I, I i almost cry laughing when i watch that yeah 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 so if people don't know what we're talking about so on on conan o'brien like late night with conan o'brien there was this like hand puppet dog called triumph the <laughs> insult comic dog and <laughs> so you could that's what you that's the yeah. key info you need to, to yes Google yeah. what, or to, to youtube what we're talking about um but i'll just uh explain how charlie kaufman ruined my life so <laughs> I watched uh, Being John Malkovich in college, and like everybody else, I just loved it. And it was just like nothing else I'd ever seen before. And then a couple of years later, I watched Adaptation, and same thing, loved it. And um, so around this time, I had won uh, – back then, it was called the Asimov Award. It's since been renamed to the Dell Magazines Award. But I had uh, won it for a short story I wrote um, you know, as an undergrad called uh, Lest We Forget, which is about erasing unpleasant memories. <laughs> And so my cousin Brian um, had Brian Barr had uh, adapted it into a short film that was shown at the New York Independent Film and Video Festival. So I was, uh, you know, sort of hopeful. I mean, of course, you know, at this point I'm just like a, a year or two out of college or something, so I have no idea like what's possible and what's not. But I was sort of, you know, hopeful that maybe we could develop it into something bigger, like a feature or something. And then I hear about this movie called Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind coming out. And so that pretty much killed any possibility <laughs> for that going anywhere. I don't know. Hollywood always does everything in threes, man. You could have. <laughs> it's true. Could have jumped on that bandwagon. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. But I mean, anyway, that's how I saw it at the time. And then I went and saw the movie and I was like, oh, yeah, that was like way better than anything <laughs> that I would have come up with at the time anyway. So, you know. So just as well, but yeah. So I love, yeah. So I loved those three movies, but um, and I felt a little bad like prepping for this that I never sort of wondered. I never watched anything else that he wrote, and never really wondered. Oh, whatever happened to Charlie Kaufman? Uh, you know, after he'd written these these three such impressive things, yeah. but it seems like that's kind of a common thing that you know that those got a lot of mainstream attention, and then his other things have not, um, you know, not been as widely. Uh, 
if not well, they're, the most they're very known. different movies i mean yeah. the same in theme but in tone no not at all mm-hmm. yeah which is good he, he he's really stretching and experimenting but um but dave you sent that article to us yeah and it was really sad how he was talking about how he's like i just blew it you know i had this i had this he was like writing for tv and in between like different seas in between tv jobs he was like oh i'm just gonna write a script so i can use it as like a loss leader to like um show to people it'll never sell but i'll show it to people and they'll think like oh maybe i could hire you to write movies for me and uh and then he so that's when he wrote uh being john malkovich and then to his surprise like it got made with spike jones and john malkovich obviously and um and then he was like you know i I don't want to later much later nowadays i guess that, that article was pretty recent wasn't it dave uh it wasn't super i think it was about i think 2016 i believe oh so yeah. not not too recent but he was really lamenting he was like i had this huge success with being john malkovich and then i totally blew it he's like i should have i should have done so much more with it and you know i, I could have used that as a springboard to a great career and i didn't which in my mind i'm like well you're a genius and you kind of have to be like you know you're you're at the mercy of your genius. Like you have to be able to fail, which I think he does sometimes. And just like the Coen brothers, like they can turn out a real Turkey, but they can turn out an awesome movie. And I, I think if I, if, if I could ever talk to him, I would just say, just keep doing it. Like who cares? Like, yeah, who cares? Who cares? You blew it. Keep blowing it. Keep doing it. Cause you're going to, you got some more in there somewhere rattling around. It'll probably come out at some point. Well, well, yeah, let me just explain for, for listeners. So, yeah, so he had these incredible successes as a screenwriter and sort of parlayed that into the opportunity to direct his next movie, which was Synecdoche, New York, uh, which was, you know, it got sort of mixed reviews. I mean, Roger Ebert said it was the best movie of the decade, but it dramatically underperformed at the box office. And so then it was not really easy for him to get directing work after that. Um, and he did direct Anomalisa, sort of co-directed it, um, but that also, I think, didn't make money. And so so he's had a hard time getting directing work. And at least according to that article sort of made it sound like he had written a bunch of screenplays and, you know, probably could get them produced by, you know, produced mm-hmm. if someone else was directing them. But he was really holding out because he wants to have control and, and be a director as well as a screenwriter. Right. Um, but... Um, yeah, let's not get too far ahead, but let's, let's, um, cause we'll come back to that. Um, but, um, but let's talk about being John Malkovich. Cause yeah, this is an interesting story how this came about because yeah, he had written as, as Tom was saying, he had written the script just to sort of show off to, to, to get hired for writing gigs, not expecting this, this was something anyone would ever actually make. And somehow he, I think he had sent it, he was just sending it to anyone who would look at it and somehow it found its way to, um, Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, and Francis Ford Coppola at the time, his son-in-law was Spike mm-hmm. Jones, And so he showed the script to Spike Jones and said, you know, you might want to direct this. And Spike Jones is like, yeah, this is awesome. I do want to direct this, but could we possibly get John Malkovich to actually do it? You know, and somehow um, Francis Ford Coppola was able to get the script to John Malkovich, who I think was a really good sport <laughs> to do this movie, but, you know, agreed to do it. Um, and yeah, and it just ended up amazing. Um, um, I guess I'll say the premise, if you haven't seen it, is that there's a depressed uh, puppeteer 
you know, <laughs> this guy who does sort of hand puppet or what do you call them? String puppet shows. Marionette. Marionette. Marionettes. Marionettes. Yeah. And it's just sort of like a failure. And, um, and his but wife he's, But is, he's brilliant. Yeah. But it's sort of, it's not making any money. Right. Um, and his wife, who's sort of obsessed with animals, and they have this whole menagerie living in their apartment with them, tells him he has to get a job. And so he gets this job in an office in this weird uh, seven and a half floor of this building where the ceilings are super low. And he finds this portal that this sort of tunnel in the wall that you crawl into and it transports you into John Malkovich's brain <laughs> and you become you experience John Malkovich's life for 15 minutes and then you get spit out and fall into the grass on the side of the New Jersey Turnpike. Uh, and then it sort of goes from there. Then it gets weird from there. <laughs> um, yeah. But um, but so uh, so Andrea, what did you what do you think of that? What do you think of that whole setup and kind of what was your uh, uh, reaction rewatching it now? Uh, rewatching it, um, I hadn't watched it probably since the first time I'd seen it, um, and rewatching it, it was just as great as it was then it's it's one of those experiences where you watch it for the first time and back then it was something i had never seen before it it just popped as um so different and innovative and um but but even watching it now knowing what i was going to see basically uh and you know whatever 20 years in between 15 20 years um I still don't think I've seen anything quite like it. And it still packs the same punch as it did the first time I saw it. Um, it's still funny. It's still relevant. Um, just in terms of, uh, <laughs> being a depressed person and, uh, <laughs> and uh, living a life of depression and interiority and, um, um, like isolation. Um, you know, being in your own head, it really hit a lot of points for me, probably not at the time. I was just more dazzled by the story and the innovation of it and the newness of it. But now it speaks to me in a way of, of, um, you know, living in your head that way and living with depression. That's what, it, it, that, that's what all of his movies kind of speak to me of now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much all of his movies, the the main character is extremely depressed. Yeah, and often bears a striking resemblance to Charlie Kaufman. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Well, I mean, let's being just, named it, Charlie Kaufman. It, all of the characters are him. It's like a Woody Allen movie. All the characters are him. Mm -hmm. you know? When, when he you is said the movie. When you said it's relevant, I thought you were going to say about like how everybody wants to be a celebrity and wants to be an influencer and pretends to be a celebrity um, online and stuff like that. That. That is true now. If that uh, social media and that's influencer influencers weren't a thing at the time, I think probably yes. The whole everybody wants to be a celebrity, but I also think everybody wants an escape. That that's universal and and forever. That's not something that it will will ever change. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, so how about how about Matt? What was it like for you coming back to this movie? Yeah. So. Um one of the things that struck me this time through was how funny it was. I guess I didn't remember how hard I had, like, I, I laughed really hard in this, like laughed out loud. I was, and uh, one of my favorite lines was like, uh, when Catherine Keener says, you know, oh, behind your, 
male pattern baldness and high forehead. And um, I saw your feminine, I can feel your feminine energy, your sexual feminine. And it like, there was also, I thought like a really interesting take on, on sexuality because it was like, it was like, she only loved John Malkovich when Lottie, the woman was in John's body. And Lottie was like, Oh no, I want to be a man. I, you know, I want to have uh you know, I want to have surgery to change my sex. And like, there was like this really interesting kind of um, polysexuality. What, uh, and, and that I thought was way ahead of its time. Um, yeah. Yes. And, and also um, there like 20 years since I've seen this, you know, I, I've, I've developed as a storyteller and I want to say that the, the pacing in this, the storytelling mm. is so spot on. It is so well paced because, you know, we've watched a lot of movies from the 60s, 70s and 80s mm -hmm. on this podcast. And, you know, the, the thing that happens when you go back to a movie that you loved that you saw 20, 30 years ago, oftentimes the pacing is off. It doesn't quite hold up. This one, I was I was riveted all the way through. And and that that is just the strength of the script. I think it, it really is a powerful script. And there's there's an emotional core to it because I, I think that like, you know, uh, John Cusack's character, Craig Schwartz, he's, he's depressed, right? He's, he's a brilliant marionette, a brilliant puppeteer. Um, but he's also a real asshole, right? Like he, he locks <clears throat> his, he locks his wife in a cage. Um, and you know, but, but there's, because like, he wants to trick another woman into having sex with him, thinking yeah. that he's someone he's not. Yeah. Exactly. So he's, he's really just a horrible person. Um, but at the same time, the strength of the script is that you feel sorry for him. You feel yeah. like you feel because he's like this, just this schlub that's and, and, you know, it's like, like he has look like Cameron Diaz is his wife and <laughs> under her like frumpy clothing, it's Cameron Diaz. Right. And then, but he's like, no, I want Catherine Keener. I want, I want this other beautiful woman. Like he, and, and this is a theme that, you know, having watched for, Charlie Kaufman films over and over is like characters that have presumably what everyone wants, or at least some people want. They always want something else. The grass is always greener. So the characters are never happy, even though they presumably have what, what other people want. Um, so I, I, I think that is the, the human condition. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, and I think that's why, that's why this film in particular, but, but all of them are, are affecting in that way. Is that it? Mm -hmm. It it really elicits that out of you, that 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 human thing out of you. I mean, like even Catherine Keener, who you know, um, Lottie Cameron Diaz says, you know, you're evil, and like Catherine Keener says, I know, I know, and like there was a moment there where she just says, I know, and I was like, I, I rewound it like three times because there was something really affecting about her just accepting the fact that she's imperfect, which again happens. In, in Charlie Kaufman's film, that mm -hmm. that moment when the characters realize their own imperfections, and and maybe don't accept it, but they they understand it. It's it's. I thought it was powerful. Yeah, well, I guess I forgot to explain. I'll just explain quickly that the four that we're talking about today, the four Charlie Kaufman movies, uh, are the ones I picked just because I felt like they were the most science fiction fantasy horror out of his oeuvre. But um, you know, he has a bunch of other movies that uh, you know, are also good or you know but aren't necessarily as science fictional or horror or whatever. I uh, but so definitely recommend adaptation. Yeah. 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 Adaptation. Good. Adaptation is definitely one of the best ones for yeah. sure. 
Um, but so, Tom, what was it like for you coming back to being John Malkovich? I thought it was really funny. Um, same, same, uh, sort of same, similar experience to Matt. I, I just was like, wow, I, I remember this being funny, but I don't remember how funny. And, um, and then I, I really enjoyed going back later and, and reading a couple of articles about it uh, because I was curious. I was like, well, I wonder if, you know, uh, first of all, I was like, it's a miracle that John Malkovich was like, yeah, I'll, I'll star in this. Like you said, he's a very good <laughs> yeah. sport. And there was a there was a comment in one of the things I read. I don't know if it was the article you sent, Dave, or a different one where uh, he had, you know, when Charlie Kaufman met John Malkovich, he's like, hey, I'm a really big fan. And John Malkovich goes, you don't need to do that. I've read the script, <laughs> uh, which which gave me pause because I was like, he's either thinking like, he's either saying like, you know, I know you're a big fan or he's saying, no, you're not a big fan. I've read the script, which I think it's probably the latter because uh, the comments like that, like the male pattern bald, baldness and the too prominent brow and like people like throwing oh, and, the beer can off the back of his head. And, and and the fact that in the movie, nobody can name any movies. That yeah, right. Yeah, the, exactly. cab, the cab driver's like, you were in that, you, you played that jewel thief in that one movie. And he goes, no, I've never played a jewel thief. And he looks at him and he goes, no, it was definitely you. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but so I, I liked, I liked, you know, I was sort of thinking like, well, what a miracle that John Malkovich, you know, what a, like you said, what a great sport for saying, yes, I'll be in this movie. And, and you know, he wasn't at the time he was getting a lot of roles. So it wasn't like he was hard up for a role. It was like he was like, no, I'll, I'll do this. Um, and so that was really interesting to me. But I thought, I wonder if originally it was called being somebody else in the, in the first No, no, person. it was, no, it no, was I, always... Okay, yeah, sorry. I understand. So, so I Googled it. I Googled it to see like, you know, like was it, what was the original title? And then I, I learned, you know, I read the story of how, like, no, it was, it was always going to be John Malkovich. In fact, so much so that Charlie Kaufman, if he couldn't have got John Malkovich, he wasn't going to make the movie. He was like, <laughs> no, it has to be John Malkovich or I'm not doing it. Because for a while there, like, the one of the studios was like, New Line Cinemas was like, well, we want it to be being Tom Cruise. That would make no oh. sense. And he was oh like, no, God. it wouldn't make any sense oh at all. No. And, and John Malkovich even said, yeah, it would make more sense if it was being Tom Cruise and I want to direct it. And Charlie Kaufman was like, no. <laughs> like just told told John Malkovich flat out, no, I'm not doing that. Um, and John and Malkovich was like, okay, okay, fine. But so I I really liked learning that about it, and then I really liked there was another one of those articles I read in the course of running down that little fun trail was where he talked about how he wrote it, and it might have been the one you you sent, Dave. He talked about how he wrote it, where he had he had an idea for a script, uh, a a movie about somebody who's cheating on his wife. And then he had an idea for a movie about somebody who has a portal into someone else's life. And he was like trying to write both of them as scripts and neither one was working. And then he's like, what if I just mash them together? And he did. And he's like, then it worked. And I thought that was fascinating. Like as a, as a writer thinking like, oh, that's cool how you took, yeah. he took like two different ideas and just stuck them together and it, and it made them both stronger. Well, and then the well, other, go ahead, Dave. Well, I, I just want to mention something I came up with in my research that I never knew about, right? And so I don't actually I forget where I where I copy and pasted this from, but but it says Spike. This is Jones, Spike Jones, the director, had issues with the movie's third act. Kaufman's draft spun off into chaos, with the main character engaging in a puppeteering duel with the devil, whose followers <laughs> enter Malkovich's body and rule Earth like a tyrant. Jones pushed Kaufman to hammer out a new ending that felt less madcap and more emotionally resonant. Mm. So oh, wow, well that was some some people needed dramaturg right or a or an editor <laughs> yeah. I guess I. I wanted to comment on that ending. So, you know, I was talking about the humanity of it, but there, but there was also like, 
the cold brutality of life, mm -hmm. right? So it's like you have um, Dr. Lester, his boss, who is really the spirit of someone who was, I don't know, uh, extremely old um, and inhabiting his body. And then he's planning with a bunch of older folks to basically go inside the body of a, of a child and inhabit the child. Um, and like, they're basically creating this child just to be a vessel for them to inhabit. So like, there was something really horrific about that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and just this idea that like, no one actually ever paused to consider that John Malkovich was an independent conscious being yeah. with his own free will. They were just like, oh no, we could just go inside him. And like the movie never once considers that. And and like, I thought that was actually a strength in the movie just to show mm -hmm. you like, there's a certain brutality in humanity. They're all, everyone wants to experience, to be alive, to be human but they're not considering like that this is actually squashing someone else's humanity. And, and that I thought was another powerful message. And that's why I think the ending, if I can speak about the ending is so haunting is just, mm -hmm. well, it's twofold. It's one that all the old folks are, are, are inhabiting uh, John Malkovich's body. Uh, and then they're also uh, because the the girl Catherine Keener's daughter was conceived while she was inhabited by someone who was sorry while, while someone was inhabiting John Malkovich's <laughs> body that she got pregnant and then so then this baby is a vessel for the next generation to do this again and so when this girl reaches 44 they're going to do it again and and it's like it's just insane at, like how cold and brutal that that is it's vampiric um, vampiric and just was, yeah. it was just so haunting at the end but but i i think that this this movie though that was one of the other thing the other thing i was going to say that how this movie struck me is i think it very much did the movie did consider that 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 you know malkovich is an independent person it isn't this horrible but i think none of the characters in the movie considered yeah. it but well, malkovich the, himself did but but no one he else did but I think, well, of course, and anybody who's, you know, a selfish human being would consider it if it was them, it's being done to. But I think the movie is all about that. I think the movie, like you talked about initially, Matt, I think the movie is all about this um, human, you know, we have things we desire, we have things we want, and how far are people willing to go to just get what they want and just, it, in terms of just like, completely screwing someone else over and not even looking back like because you're right nobody in the movie even pauses like he he john cusack's character goes uh you know wow this is so many different implications about this and you think he's going to start talking about something profound and he even says it's really profound implications and he goes for example i walked in i went in there with a piece of wood in my hand where's the wood now <laughs> where's is he the still wood? in malkovich but he comes up with that but he never once the says wood, like the wood comes well, out later but anyway. out later. i think it i think it's yeah. I think it's important, though, that, that Malkovich is a celebrity. You know, it's being John Malkovich. It's not just being some ordinary person, right? And that, you know, so often people, like, bad things happen to celebrities and people just think it's, their, their attitude is like, well, that person's rich, they're famous, yeah. like, they can handle anything, you know? And it's like, you know, even, no matter how bad something is that happens to a celebrity, there's such a, like, like feeling that they're not a real human being. They can't they're, suffer. They're objectified. Of the, yeah, you know? yeah. 
Can I just say that I was surprised that Charlie Sheen was in this? I had forgotten. <laughs> I'd, I'd oh. forgotten that too. I so had he, a big laugh. <laughs> so he was originally supposed to be, uh, I can't think who, somebody else. And then John Malkovich said, no, if I were really in trouble, I would turn to Charlie Sheen. So I'd like it to be him. And I was floored by that because I was like, I thought that was a joke. Like there's no way John Malkovich would go to Charlie Sheen for advice. But apparently that was that was John Malkovich's uh, his input of like this is who I would turn to. <laughs> God. Yeah, yeah. And then when Charlie comes like seven years later and he's balding Bald. and they have that, <laughs> that awful like uh, fake scalp or whatever on him. Ugh. Yeah, that was hilarious. All right, so let's let's get into Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So in this movie, uh, there's a guy named Joel. And he finds out that his uh, girlfriend, uh, Clementine, has undergone an uh, sort of experimental procedure to erase all memory of him from her mind. And he decides that the the pain of this is so much that he's just going to do the same thing and erase her from his mind. But as he's undergoing the procedure and he's sort of reliving their relationship in reverse, so going from the the bad stuff that happened to the end and moving toward the good stuff that happened to the beginning and changes his mind and is trying to stop the erasing procedure. But in the end, it does in fact erase his memories of her, but then they sort of reconnect serendipitously um, afterwards and the story sort of goes from there. Uh, so Matt, uh, what was it like coming back to this movie? Uh, I remembered really enjoying this film the first time through. I hadn't, I think I saw a fragment of it, uh, since I, I definitely saw this in the theater. Um, I, I love this movie and having rewatched it now, I think this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm -hmm. Um, it is so beautiful. Um, Mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's a message here, um, that, I think, and I know we're going to talk about Kaufman's like belief that he's, you know, lost the moment or whatever. And I have a theory as to why. Um, But so first of all, the, the heart of this movie is ultimately about um, accepting someone's imperfections. So like there's this, part of the movie where uh kate winslet clementine uh says to joel jim carrey you know uh you know you you expect me to save you you expect me to to uh uh you know change your life be this magical person and he's like you're right i did and the movie ends with them in the hallway they they just discovered that both of them have had their memories erased of each other they're, they have, they're listening to these audio tapes that each of them made, basically saying all the horrible things that they felt about each other. That was magical. And then, and then she's like, you, you're She's like, you're going to get bored of me. You're going to get sick of me. And, 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 you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm just, it's just going to, you know, I'm just going to be this, this, uh, it's, it's not going to be what, what you think it is. And, and then he's like, okay, like, I accept you. I accept you with your flaws. And then you see it in her face, like there's this moment where she just realizes that he's going to accept her with her flaws. And then she realizes, oh, wait, and I can do the same to him. And there's this like, it's just such a beautiful moment. Mm -hmm. And so like, I've 
heard people criticize this movie. Oh, <gasps> she's a, the manic pixie dream girl, right? <sighs> and and if you look at it from a superficial way, you could say, oh yeah, she's like you know she's got the dyed hair and she's she's um spontaneous and impulsive and she crashes the car and she she likes to drink and and go out all night and but if you look at it really it's exact it i believe it destroys that trope and the reason why is she doesn't save him she's she's not the one that comes and saves his life and and makes all his dreams come true she's she's just as flawed as he is and and when he comes to recognize that that she's not going to save him and not going to solve all his problems and still accepts her anyway. That's the beauty of the moment, and recognizing that she's a human being and not his savior, and vice versa. That that that's what makes the movie so affecting. So, Andrea, it sounds like you're you're just uh, aghast at the idea of anyone criticizing this movie. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's just um, unlike uh, the difference. Unlike his other movies. This that ending it ends in, on a note of hope. Yes, that's um, what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. There's and I remember thinking at the time, and it reinforced it watching again was that love is worth it. Mm-hmm. That was the, that was the takeaway for me. It's worth it. All of the bad stuff. It's worth it. Yes. Um, and that meant so much to me. And I, I re- very, I have a very vivid memory Dave of discussing this movie when it came out with you hmm. Um, hmm. and someone else who didn't like it <laughs> and the two of us ganging up on this person <laughs> <laughs> um, and talking about it. It's just, I think, like I said, it, it, it is one of my favorite movies and I hadn't watched it in years and watching it again, it just reinforced everything I remembered about it. And usually when I'm watching movies for this, I'll take notes and I'm looking at my notes now and there's literally nothing there, which for me, when that happens, when I'm doing this means that I was completely engrossed in the movie and I just had nothing to say because I just wanted to watch it. That's the kind of movie this is. It just, you, there's nothing to, there's no way to walk away from it. I mean that that's interesting you say that because rewatching it I didn't like it as much as I <gasps> was expecting to, so I'm not sure if I should go into that or get Tom in here first. Um, go for it, go for it. I mean, yeah. So so I saw this you know the first time when I was 25 or so, and uh, I really liked it. I the, the parts that stick out. There's a lot of it I, I had forgotten. I didn't remember the uh, Elijah Wood or Mark Ruffalo characters at all. But the parts that stuck out in my mind is Kirsten Dunst quoting Alexander Pope, which I think is just sublime. Um, that ending shot where they're running along the beach together. Mm-hmm. And I really liked, you know, since I'd written, as I said, a story about erasing memories and stuff, I thought the way that it portrayed the memory erasing technology where you bring in all your objects that you associate with a person and it kind of draws a map of your mental you know, mental model of them in your mind and erases that, that all seemed really um believable to me or like like if this technology actually existed this is yeah this is the way it would actually work i think it does i think something like this actually does there is a way for that psychologists use machinery to ease bad memories for people who've been through traumatic experiences i'm I'm Mm. pretty sure that's a thing Okay, but so I'll, so I was expecting to 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 love this like I like I apparently I, I used to. Um, so the 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 problem I had with it really is that 
Since I was 25, I have formed much more concrete opinions about what are red flags in relationships that hmm. somebody that you're dating is dangerously insane. <laughs> and uh, the Kate Winslet character just like has so many red flags. I would never even dream of dating her today. So there's the like sort of badgering him to get married the first time they meet, at least as far as she knows. The like getting drunk and crashing into fire hydrants. The like That's a red flag, really. <laughs> the like breaking into people's houses and wearing their clothes. Like all this stuff, like I guess when I was 25 seemed like I could at least it seems sort of like I could sort of rationalize it as sort of adorably quirky or free spirit or something. But like now it just seems like like so like unacceptable. And I don't know if I'm just old or something, but <laughs> like the whole time I was just like, you know, Jim Carrey's like, you know, he's remembering the first time they, they met where she's like breaking into the house. And he's like, I ran away. I was scared. I'm like, no, no, dude, you were totally right. That You would stick with your gut on that one. <laughs> Those are some good instincts you've got there. So, um, so yeah, that, that made it made me enjoy the movie less just because like I, I had really mixed feelings about whether he should be pursuing this relationship at all. But that might just be my baggage. But uh, Tom, what is your what are your feelings about this movie? I think that might be baggage because it might be just that it's too personally like some a way that you've changed that that makes it harder for you to enjoy. Because with if I can just echo back to being John Malkovich for a minute. That movie made me feel really good this time around watching it because when I watched it originally, I was like really rooting for John Cusack's character and a lot less of what the people in the movie were doing seemed wrong to me. For some, I, I was young and like thought I was a good person, I guess, but I think I, it made me feel like, oh, I've matured a lot because I'm watching this movie now and I'm like, these people all need to pull their heads out and stop trying to screw everybody over to get what they want. But um, But this movie... I don't have that kind of baggage with, I didn't really have it back then. And I don't, like, I, I never was attracted to somebody who would like get wasted and go drive a car. And so I was always like, that's a red flag. So I think I don't really have a horse in that race. I'm not like, oh, this guy should, I don't know. It just seems like a no brainer that yes, he should wake up and not do that. But this is who he is. Like, that's the character. But, um, but I really, I really love this movie. Like first time ever seeing it, um, as a you know fifty four year old man, I was I was blown away by it. I thought it was really sweet. I, I the part when it gets to that part Matt described about how they suddenly like they just met each other ostensibly, although they haven't. They've had a whole relationship that's been erased, but they're meeting each other new for the first time because she was able he was able to preserve this tiny bit of her that just whispers like come find me mm. um and well, montauk meet you in montauk, montauk, yeah. you in montauk yeah. meet me in montauk and so he's able to like preserve that and through that they meet and they they're intrigued by each other and they start having that first phase of a relationship where you're like really excited by this person and i think this this is such a central theme for kaufman in all these movies or in most of them that when you first meet someone, mm -hmm. they're on this pedestal that they can't possibly stay on. And that, you know, you've got this ideal that you're making the person into the ideal. And then you're going to find out later that that's not who they are. And, but wouldn't it be funny? I almost wonder if this wasn't the germ of the story for him. Wouldn't it be amazing if like you, you're in that phase of the relationship where you're all excited and everything's wonderful and you're in like heaven and you know, all your endorphins are going and you're like, I want to be with this person. I want to feel this forever. 
And then all of a sudden you start hearing like a narrative from inside their mind from like six months or a year from now after you're both like sick of each other. And so, and just like you hear the other person saying, or you hear yourself, first of all, saying, she's so annoying. Why is her hair always a different color? Like, can't she just accept who she is? Like, it, it drives me crazy. And she goes out drinking all the time and like, blah, blah. And you hear this and you're like, and they both are hearing it. So they're looking at each other like, holy shit. And then she hears, you know, then they hear her talking about all the things she hates about him. And what an amazing, like, kind of gift and curse that would be mm. to have yeah. that laid out for you at the beginning in that phase to pop that bubble, to be like, no, if you're going to, if you're going to get into this, you're going to have to know that this is reality. This is your ideal is bullshit. And I thought that was absolutely beautiful. And then, yeah, obviously that she, you know, that he's then like, no, okay, okay, that's fine. Like all these things are going to happen in the future. That's fine. Let's do it. Um, and the yeah, way that was, her, her face, like at that moment, there's like this moment of like shock and then realization, like, you know, she should, she should have gotten, you know, multiple awards just for that <laughs> expression. Yeah. It's just so well acted. Yeah. Her face. Just, I think she just, was like an Oscar nominee for this. Yeah. Well, well deserved. She just, yeah, it just destroys her. You can see like when, when she hears it, it just destroys her. You can see it on her face. But then, yeah, the whole movie, like the speculative fiction aspects of it, were so well thought out and so well like traversed and mapped out. And he, he really like leads you on this. Once he comes up with that idea, he doesn't just say like, here's the idea. And isn't this fun? He leads you on this romp through what all that would entail. I remember Tim Powers, Dave telling us in our clarion workshop, like, you know, I tried to introduce like this, this speculative fiction element and that speculative fiction element and it, and it was just too many. And after a while, it was mm. like you couldn't you couldn't keep track of all the different things that would have to happen. So I just gave up and just pulled a lot of them out. And I think that's I understand that. I I you know I I understand why he says that, and that makes a lot of sense to me. But in this movie, you see Kaufman going, "No, I am going to introduce these this speculative fiction element, and I'm going to just have my way with it, and just like lead you on this romp all through it with these great characters." that is going to be a really heartwarming story that he just, and he, yeah, the well, fact and, that he pulls it off is amazing. And like different permutations on the idea. Like I actually, like I said, I'd completely forgotten about the Elijah Wood character who's trying to seduce mm -hmm. Kate Winslet by following this template that he knows worked in the past that she doesn't remember anymore, which right. I actually thought that was brilliant. I, I on this watch, I kind of wish that that had been developed a little bit more because I thought he was kind of just treat that the Elijah Wood character was just kind of treated like comic relief. And I thought that, you know, like trying to romance someone with with this approach that you know should work and them not really and it not really working was this is a sort of poignant thing that I think I felt like maybe could have been explored a little bit more. Um but uh, well, but yeah I want to get back, Andrea. No, it's just it, talking about that, it kind of reminded me of the movie this moment in the movie Tootsie, if anybody remembers that. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Um, where he's talking to Jessica Lang as Tootsie, as a woman. And she says, I just wish I want the simplicity of a man who comes up to me and says, you know, I find <laughs> you beautiful and I'd love to make love to you. Yeah. And so as a man, he comes back to her and says exactly the same thing she said to him. And she slaps him in the face. <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> awesome. You know, yeah. it's like, it, you never know what you actually want, you know? Oh. 
Yeah, yeah. There's something that goes beyond words when it comes to emotions and people and attraction and all that that you can't like. You know, and it's very true. Like Elijah Wood and and Dustin Hoffman both make that mistake of thinking it's all about the words, where there's just something inside that the words are just like icing on top of that cake. Yeah. Yeah, but 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 so I feel like just in concept, like I still love this movie. It's just like I wish they had toned down Kate Winslet's flaws a little bit and made them more sort of ordinary level rather than like but, breaking and but, entering well, drunk driving. But I think level. it's her, her flaws that that make the movie. I, I think it's her flaws that that he accepts her despite all of her flaws that that makes it so powerful. I agree. Um, I think I think she had to be that character because she's the perfect counterpoint to his character, which is exactly the opposite. He's like this introvert who never talks and i I think you you had to have her i i yeah i'm i think you have to look at it through the lens of the main character being charlie kaufman (laughs) and the main character being someone who is withdrawn a a true introvert and wanting someone who will draw him out i think that's the point of i wish i had stayed is i wish i had been more free-spirited the way you were or you are um, you know, it, it's a, f- a fantasy of being more free spirited, not so much the woman, but the, the person. I, I also I mean. think, yeah, yeah. And I also think that, um, the movie kind of seduces you in a way because it, it starts off where, you know, Jim Carrey, uh, you know, he's not feeling right. He call and he gets impulsive himself. He does an impulsive act and goes to Montauk. He's like, I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm never mm-hmm. impulsive. And he goes to Montauk and then he meets this, you know, this woman on the beach and you think it's their first time that they met. And you're like, who is this woman? Why is she so crazy? Why is she so like, she's nuts. Like why? Like, like, you know, I, I, you know, you, I felt like you Dave for a second. I'm like, she's kind of crazy. Um, she's a little, and then why is she like almost stalking him? And then, you start to see, oh, maybe there's a little something there. Maybe there's a little something there. And then you you realize later that it's not the first time they met. And then that's I was like, oh, that that was that was beautiful the way they did that. Yeah. Um but uh I actually uh I didn't have a Clementine like experience, but I used to commute on Long Island Railroad all the time. And the, yeah, there was I won't go into it too much but there was a, a oh, young please woman go who, into it oh, man. all right there was there was a young woman who i used to see around at at various bars and stuff and and she like befriended me one night on the train it was very similar to that like she was really and wow. and and beautiful young woman and but there was like a really deep sadness in her and mm-hmm. and i and i felt bad for her and uh we hung out a little bit and um, her parents were, were professional clowns, um, which was just, and, and I went to her house. Yes. And I went to her house and I thought she was making it up playing a joke, but I saw photos uh, of them in the house, but it, it was, I, I felt really like sad because it seemed like there was like a lot of neglect there. I know we're getting way off the topic of the, of, <laughs> of the movie, but anyway, it was, uh, I I'll tell you more uh off the podcast but it 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 was <laughs> well, uh it was just it just reminded me in 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 some ways of that cuz it was like the same literally the same railroad I used to commute 
Long Island Railroad every day. And, and well, it, and, that's interesting, actually, yeah. Matt, because I feel like I can make a segue from that to the movie. I'm thinking of ending things. Kind of reminds me of the setup of that. Uh, so the setup is that there's a young woman and she's been dating her boyfriend for like a month or six weeks or something. And she's going to go visit or going to go to this farmhouse to meet his parents for the first time. Um, and she's thinking of breaking up with him because even though he's sort of okay, uh, she's not really feeling it. Um, and then the story sort of goes from there. Uh, so how about Tom? I'm glad you asked me first because I had never seen this before and I purposely did not go and read any reviews of this after I watched it because I wanted to have a fresh take and now I really will because I'm not going to hear you or Andrea or Matt say what you thought first. So I won't, I won't shy away from what I'm about to say, but I really was thinking of ending my life watching this movie. Um, <laughs> I, not, not really, but I, I really, this movie, I really disliked this movie and, and I really, I think it started out so intriguing because I think my initial take on it was that it, it was such a mystery all the way through it at first. Yeah. It was like, it was like, okay, so she's breaking up with him, but there's something weird going on here. And then they, they start changing her name from one name to another. And you're, and you're at first, you're like, I thought her name was like, like Lucy. And then now it's Lucille. And now I think her name is changing. And then, I, and then her occupation started changing. Like he'd refer to her as like a physicist, as a, you know, a, a medical student, as a poet, as a painter, like as a waitress, like, and you're still like, okay. So, and she never notices it. Like the main character, the, the I person that the narrator never notices that he's doing this. So you're like, something is really bizarre. This is really interesting. And then it goes from there to, I started thinking, okay, I think, I think he's crazy. And I think she is a figment of his imagination. I haven't read anything. So I don't, I've never read any analysis or whatever. This is my own. I was like, I think she's a figment of his imagination, but the movie is being told through her eyes. He's crazy and he's imagined her. And now she's like, she, she doesn't know that she's a figment of this crazy person's imagination. What a horrible, what a horrible reality to have to wake up to. And then the more like, then it goes into like, you see his parents' home, which I think is really his parents' home. And there's this horrible thing that happened with these pigs and maggots that I think is really from his past. And then you see his parents get old and die. And you think these are all memories from him. And then you start seeing this janitor from this high school and you, and I started thinking the janitor is him he's this old like crazy janitor and he's and he's got this imaginary like young woman who he thinks he's in love with who in the movie's being told from her point of view and I was like this is fascinating but then it gets near the end and it starts to get really wacky and there's like this long way too long interpretive dance thing that takes over from the characters and that yeah just really bothered me. I was really like, I really feel like now that you said that one of you guys made this comment about, uh, about how somebody else came in, Spike Jones came in and said, no, 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 it got too wacky at the end. You have to like rewrite the end. I feel like he, Charlie Kaufman needs to just back up and be like, okay, I'm going to have to work with somebody else who's going to say no to certain things in my stuff, even though that doesn't feel honest to me. If I want to, 
turn out a product, you know, something, not a product, yeah. but something that like my first movie, which, you know, wasn't all him. It was somebody else came yeah, in and said, I, it's too wacky. I totally agree with that. And I mean, like, um, th- this was based on a novel. Mm-hmm. So, oh. I mean, he, he's not completely responsible for the ending and stuff like that. Apparently he changed it a lot, but it's still like the basic ideas from this novel. Oh, uh, okay. Um, but yeah, I totally agree with, I, I like, after watching all these movies, I totally started thinking of Charlie Kaufman as sort of like George Lucas, where he's like someone who's a visionary and his early work was took that vision and filtered it through like collaborators who were more normal and could make it something the audience could relate to more. And then once he got enough power to completely make it his vision, the audience for the most part is kind of like, yeah, I kind of liked it better, the earlier stuff better. Um, yeah. you know, with George Lucas and the Phantom Menace I'm talking about. Yeah, and and, um, and for Ghost, just one to riff off that, for Ghostbusters, I read that Dan Aykroyd wrote this script that was like 500 pages long. And uh, and then he had yeah. like uh, Ivan Reitman or somebody came in and was like, no, 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 you need to cut like, you've got a great germ of a story here, but it's it's this part. And he pulled out the parts that were good and said, this is the movie. And then yeah. there were originally like, like nine evil gods and stuff in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but Andrea, what do you, what'd you think of, uh, I'm thinking of ending things. Where do I start? Um, first of all, I just want to say that I thought it was a beautiful movie. Like it's a work of art. However, um, it was watching that movie was profoundly bad for my mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, she, you know, you, Tommy said, you want to kill yourself? There was, um, it, once we got to the part where they're driving home, they're in the car driving home, I started to fantasize about like hanging myself. Wow. <laughs> and then, and then the part with the dance, I actually liked that. Um, but I was like crying at that point. Um, it is impenetrable. Um, yeah, it took me a while to come to the conclusion that Jake is the main character, but he it's told through the eyes of the girl because it's all a fantasy. Mm. Um, Jake's the, the janitor, and everything that goes on and everything they say is a memory or an item from his childhood. And you notice that when you go to the scene where he go where she goes into his childhood bedroom. And if you look around, like there's quick shots, but you can catch them. There's like the Wordsworth book of Wordsworth poems, which is what he quotes when he's when they're first in the in the car. There's the book of poetry with the the poet poem that she reads as her own is actually a real poem, and you see the book in the the bedroom. Uh, there's a book of a Pauline Kale book, and the there's a part where she does a critique of um, a woman under the influence, the Cassavetes movie, which is, I've never read Pauline Kael, but I'm certain that is exactly what she wrote about that movie. Um, And you slowly come to the conclusion that he's just pulling things from his childhood, books, movies, plays, everything. And that's what is coming out of her mouth. Yeah. Um, And I also think like what is missing from this movie and this section of his life, this section of his creative life is the humor that is in John Malkovich and um, eternal sunshine. There's a funny movies. There is nothing funny about this. He has um, 
it's like a mirror into his middle-aged depression <laughs> and it's painful to watch um yeah. you know just having gone through the death of both my parents it oh, was just it, it's a just a, a a knife in the gut all of that um and it's also it's built as a horror movie like you're yes. walking through that barn and you're just waiting and then you're going into that basement and you're waiting you're just waiting for the blood to pour out of the walls or something. Yeah. And it never happens, but that's sort of when I sort of realized that it's a horror movie, but it's an internal horror movie. It's it's the horror of being trapped in your memories and regretting life. Because um, I think that's sort of what I got from the janitor is just he has now built yeah. up this, this fantasy, um, which he finds comfort in from his you know, his job as a janitor where he's basically well, invisible, you know? Well, but also I, I think it's important that the janitor is clearly suicidal. And so, yeah. you know, I'm thinking of ending things has the double it, exactly of the ending the relationship, but also ending the janitor's life. Yeah. Um, so Matt, what was your take on this movie? Um, so before I go into the negative things, I want to talk about <laughs> the things that I, really liked about this movie um it was uh at least when i watched it on netflix it said thriller comma horror yeah <laughs> and i and i definitely got the horror vibe from this and and um i thought particularly like the suspense of this film was just like built up to such a degree that i was literally on the edge of my seat at points like when when they're at the at the house and the and they're having dinner oh. and then just uh the mother who uh to me has uh i think schizophrenia um some form of mental illness uh and just just the stuff that was going on at the table and, and then he's like oh we don't go in the basement i don't go i don't go in the basement yeah, yeah. yeah. and um i i just thought that part of the movie was brilliant and and I and I wanted more of that. Um the parts of the movie I found interminable. Like I did like the scenes when they were driving for like 5 to 7 minutes. Yeah. But those scenes go on and on and on and on. And and I was like, "Come on, get to the point already." Like it it just after a while it it stopped working for me. And I did like when they're driving and all of a sudden you blink and they're like you know, at the, the Dairy Queen or whatever it was called. Mm. And, and they blink and they're at home or, you know, like uh, those types of transitions were really effective. And, um, but uh, I understand why, you know, Tom and Andrea, you were so depressed after this. It is literally one long suicide note. That's mm -hmm. what the movie is. He dies. The, the, the janitor kills yeah. himself. At the end, you see uh, the parking lot of the school, there is one car, not two cars. It's the janitor's car and he's, he hasn't left. And there's like two feet of snow on the car. So the yeah. implication is he killed himself at the school. So, um, the, uh, whatever her name is, Lucy, uh, th the problem that I have with this movie is that they give her agency. They make her the point of view character, but then she can't do anything with that agency. Like the moment, like she just sort of fades into the background and and i get it she's a figment of his imagination she was never real but 
you gave her agency, you gave her a point of view. So, so by taking that away, I almost wanted there to be a moment where present day janitor, or at least Jesse realizes that she's a figment of his imagination and, and then have that tension of her slipping away. But yeah. we, we never quite get that. But well, I, I, I did. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say one. Well, 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 uh, let me, let me, let me pick up on that because I mean, I think that like in one, at one level, the concept for this is brilliant. And at one con at one level, I think the concept is mis- disastrously misguided. And the the thing I think is brilliant is the idea of taking a visit to your boyfriend's parent, your first meeting your boyfriend's parents for the first time and treating that as a haunted house story. Yeah. Because this is 100% a genre haunted house story. It follows every convention of the haunted house Mm -hmm. stories. And it's not like literally a haunted house because there's like different locations, but in terms of what genre it is, that that's what it is. It, you know, you have a character who moves out of normal reality and there's like intrusions of the uh, uncanny and they get more and more, uh, you know, what, what's the word? More, more and more um, sinister, you know, evident or uh, whatever, yeah. you know. And, and, the, and in the end, the character either dies or is trapped in the dream or escapes or whatever. So, so that I think is just a great concept. And to me, the problem is that it's presented as a puzzle story. Uh, where, you know, there's all these mysteries about what's going on that are presented in such a way that you're invited to figure them out, but they, but the solution is stupid. It's like, no, it's, it's like all a dream. It's, it's how happening in somebody's right. head. It was like that, the, I don't know if you saw the John Cusack movie Identity, where it's like, it turns out at the end, all the characters are, uh, fit, you know, multiple personalities of a guy who's about to be executed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like, remember that movie. Yeah. Like, this makes no sense. Like, and it's like, yeah. So, so in my opinion, there's two ways you could go with this, either of which would be good. And one is to make it clear from the start that we're in the mind of somebody suicidal and actually explore that, you know, the, the actual implications for his character and what his life has been and stuff like that. But because it's presented as a puzzle story, we never find out anything interesting about him because in order to keep the mystery going, we don't even find out what's going on until the end of the movie, possibly later. So nothing interesting about his character is ever really explored. Where the other way, which I think would personally be way more interesting, would be to get rid of the stupid, it's all happening in his head thing, and just make this literally, you know, actually a story about someone who you, you go to the your boyfriend's parents' house, and you there's nothing about him that's bad enough that's going to make you break up with him, but you know that he's never going to love you as much as he loves himself, and use the haunted house as a metaphor to explore a woman's perspective on this relationship, and I feel like that would be a way more interesting story. But I feel like you could go either way with it. But those I think would, that you could go either way. Could, go ahead, Tom. Those those would both be really cool. Um, you should you should probably write both of those, Dave. Um, <laughs> but but I I did see I did like that she was um, that she was imaginary. I, I thought that was really cool. I like the idea of somebody. It's kind of like a Shutter Island sort of thing. But I like I like as it was developing for the first like part of the movie, I liked it better than Shutter Island. How she's like, she's like thinking, you know, she, it starts out where she's like, has all the power. Cause she's like, I think I'm thinking of ending things. Like I'm going to, I'm going to ditch this guy. I don't know why I agreed to go with him to his parents' house. But as soon as I get back, I'm never going to talk to him again and it'll be fine. And you feel bad for the guy. And it goes from there to realizing like, Oh no, like she's a, part of his imagination and it sucks to be her but i do agree with matt that i wish i wish it had gone more into like her 
somehow realizing that it was so chilling when they go to like the Dairy Queen type place, yeah. and the and the woman is like, you you start to realize then that she's imaginary because he's standing there and they're laughing at him. And they're going, "Aren't you going to order?" And she's up there like trying to order, and they're completely ignoring her. And uh, and then the imaginary person or the remembered girl comes out with the rash and rash or whatever on her on her wrist like bruises or something on her wrist and starts talking to the imaginary girl talking to the main character um and and i that's when i realized like oh this main character is imaginary but it's like if she's imagine like how can she like fucking go into the basement and finds the janitor's thing in the washing machine because like if, because like, she's in so his dumb. head because she's no because she's walking around inside his head that was all in his head so, the reason why he didn't want to go into the basement because that that's he doesn't want to face the truth he doesn't yeah. want to face the truth that he was a janitor what she yeah. finds in the laundry is like all of his janitorial the shirts, yeah. shirts yeah which i thought was brilliant yeah. and but i i wish i thought it was going toward and maybe this is just again my baggage i thought it was going toward she's gonna realize what she is and it's going to be like holy shit and then maybe she now that you guys have explained what's really going on i'm like well maybe maybe it would have been cool to have her like try to talk him out of it or try to like give him yeah, some that, some hope like agency like yeah. you said matt some agency and so so like you know one of the uh you know ad, an advice advice they give to writers of of TV and film and, and books, et cetera. One of the things they always say is don't end it with, it was all a dream. Right. And, and that's exactly what this is here. It's like, it was all a dream. And, you know, there are like, I think a really good writer could make that work. And I think had they given her agency, like, so, so this movie is unrelentingly bleak. It, it mm-hmm. starts on a bleak note. It ends on an incredibly bleak note. And it's so different from eternal sunshine and being well being john malkovich is pretty pretty bleak too but eternal sunshine is like ends on this beautiful moment of hope so i was just kind of surprised that uh this one was very nihilistic that way and you know i i think it it may have worked and maybe i know this was based off of a book and i don't know how the book ends but if she tries if she recognizes that she's a figment of his imagination and she recognizes that he's suicidal and tries to talk him out of that suicide. And maybe she fails and maybe she doesn't. But I think that confrontation could have been yeah. profound. Yeah, it just um, was unresolved as it was. Yeah, it was just it just ended at unresolved. And and it was just like there were just such haunting images in this, very much reminded me of of a David Lynch, David Lynch films. Mm. Uh there were just just that David Lynch is really good at just setting up like a really haunting unsettling feeling you're not really yeah. sure why you're unsettled but something's yes. off and and this film had that in droves so it was I, all like, unsettling all of it yeah yeah so i like i would actually see another charlie kaufman horror movie because i think that <laughs> if he had like if he nails the ending it could be really really great but this one just it was too long and and it just it just felt very unresolved to me and really like it, extremely bleak I agree. And by the way, I didn't, Andrea, I didn't mind that it didn't have any humor and that it was bleak. I thought that was, it was a nice change. It was, it was like something different he was trying and I was okay with it. I just, I just agree with Matt. I feel like it, I just wanted it to resolve better. 
I mean, maybe this is just a personal thing of mine, but I, I just, I hate any story where it turns out, oh, it was all happening in the person's minds and there's yeah. all this like bullshit basement in their minds that doesn't uh, correlate to anything in neurology or anything like that. And it's just like once once it's all happening in the imagination, there's no rules and anything can happen. And so nothing is interesting because right. like there's no limitations and nothing has to make sense because nothing should make sense if it's all imaginary. And I, I just, none of the, none of the stories like that work for me at all. I, I, I hate them all. Uh, Andrea, any uh, final thoughts on um, thinking I'm just things? picking up on what Matt said about, um, or maybe it was Tom, about not being humorous or being so different. It's just, it felt to me like he wrote these movies at very, very different points in his life. Yeah. And I think I said this when I when we started was that it's like watching the progression of middle age depression. Um, yeah. You know, we, we start out life, maybe even with a cynical eye to what's going on, but there's a, a sense of humor about it. But you creep towards, you know, middle age, your 50s, and it's just like, it, there's nothing funny about it anymore. And I think Charlie Kaufman's so tied to his characters. He, he, it, it is various stages of him that, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat, uh, concerned for his mental health because this was so bleak. Um, you know, these are all the terrible things that happen to you in middle life, m middle age, you know, parents dying, um, realizing your life's half over and you, you're a janitor in a high school. Um, so I, I, that's where I think that all comes from. Um, you know, it is, it is a bit of a horror movie. Uh, and as for maybe agency, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm just thinking, just having, you know, dealing with depression. It's, there's a thing called learned helplessness, which is where yep. things gone, have gone so wrong that you just stop trying. So I think Lucy, as a figment of his imagination, doesn't have agency because he does not have agency. It's, it's his attempt to sort of, change the narrative but mm. at the end of the day you really can't so i think it's that metaphor for just being trapped in your own head yeah. um yeah that, that was my that's yeah. my take on it i spent okay, a lot we, of time we, thinking about it because it may be like i said it was watching that movie was profoundly bad for my mental health <laughs> oh, all right we, we need to move on to our last movie anomalisa <laughs> Um, so the premise of this one is that, and it's done with stop action puppets, which is kind of cool, but the premise is that there's this motivational speaker named Michael, and somehow he's suffering from a condition where he sees everybody in the world as having the same face and having the same voice, uh, which is sort of obviously a very profoundly alienating experience for him, you know, including his wife and his little boy and <laughs> just everybody. And so he's uh, gone to this hotel to give a lecture uh, about customer service. And uh, while he's at the hotel, he hears a voice that's different um, than everybody else's. And so he meets this young woman, Lisa, who looks and sounds, you know, like an individual person. It's the first person like this he's encountered in years. And so he obviously like instantly is... Uh, sort of obsessed with her and kind of falls in love with her. And the story kind of goes from there. Uh, so how about Matt? Overall impressions of Anomalisa? 
I feel like this is the exact opposite of Eternal Sunshine. So <laughs> whereas Eternal Sh- Sunshine is about accepting people's imperfections and loving them anyway, this is about a narcissistic character who is incapable of accepting someone for who they are. He only wants to see the butterfly. He doesn't want to see like, you know, the ugly caterpillar or the chrysalis or whatever. Um, he, he, he doesn't, um, have, he doesn't see her as a human being. And, and like the mo, like he, 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 he hears her voice and she's got this voice. that's different from everyone else. And he, you know, makes love to her in the hotel and then they're having breakfast and the, like, she's got a little food in her mouth and he's, Oh, don't talk with your mouth full. And, and Oh, don't, you're being a little controlling like the, like, and all of a sudden he starts criticizing her and then her voice starts changing back into the, the same monotone that everyone else speaks in. Um, like if I explain that premise to you, it's, Oh yeah, it sounds like an interesting movie. This was the most boring movie I think I've ever seen. I mean, there, there was entire scenes where it's just like, he's on an airplane then he takes a cab. Then he goes to the hotel room. He fills a bucket of ice. He smokes a cigarette. The stop motion was great. The stop motion animation. I thought, Oh, this is fabulous. But like, I loathed him as a character. I did not want to watch mm-hmm. him. I did not care about him. And like every interaction, him with another person was just like disgusting to watch. Like the way he, tre- like he had a wife and kid on and like his kid wants to speak to him. Oh, don't put my son on. And then he goes down to the restaurant and, and he calls up his old fling and then he pisses her off in like two seconds and then she runs away. And then he meets two women in the hallway and, and then he's like, well, I want you to come back to my room and basically tells the other one off. And then like, like I, I thought that the, the stop motion sex scene was kind of amazing and how awkward they made it. Um, but best over- hardcore puppet sex since team America. <laughs> <World Police>. <laughs> <laughs> Which is saying something. Or since being John Malkovich, you know, there was some, well, simulated marionette sex. But oh, yeah. uh, what's with puppet sack? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess he likes puppets. But uh, no, I didn't like this movie. And, and, I, and I found it uh, kind of, um, again, it was, it was just very nihilistic. Like, there, there, so, so I, I read a review of this after, and someone uh, said this movie was 90 minutes of contempt for life. And it, <laughs> it, 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 just, it just felt um, that there was like, no joy and no attempt for joy. Like it was just, it was all bleak and, and like clearly, clearly this guy's depressed. He's, he's got this kind of, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great window into depression. If you want to mm-hmm. know what it's being depressed is feel, feels like that's what it is. But who wants to be depressed for, for 90 minutes, you know, or two hours, whatever. I don't know how long this was. It was just like unrelenting okay. bleakness. That well, let me, let me, let me jump in because I, I actually love this movie <laughs> okay. and it's 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. Really? So, okay. So apparently there is a contingent that likes it. So I'm actually really curious now uh, what Andrea and Tom thought. But uh, Andrea, what did you, did you like this movie? I don't think liked is the word. I recognize it as a, a, a work of great creativity. Um, but it's funny that you you were upset by the red flags of 
uh, Clementine in uh, Eternal Sunshine because my immediate feeling about this movie and the character is he's a manipulative creep taking advantage of vulnerable women in order yep. to make himself feel better. And it was very uncomfortable and he was, he's a terrible person. Now that said, again, this is another movie about a character with deep depression. Um, I don't, I didn't get the impression that he had a condition that made him see everything, everybody the same or hear everybody the same. I thought that was a function of the depression because, right. you know, like the way when you're depressed, you just see everything in, in gray, like the colors just leak away from everything and you're just you're existing and everything around you is gray everybody's talking but you know they're saying words but what does it all mean um that's what it felt like to me like he's just seeing all everybody looks the same at this point all their voices are the same everything's the same and he is self-sabotaging um and then he meets this young woman who is different and he immediately gloms onto her because this is something that is different from my, my, uh, my depression. And, but he, but he takes advantage of that in, it's, he's so desperate to break out of this depression that he, he wrecks it. He wrecks her and it's painful to watch. It is absolutely painful. There is nothing loving about what he does. Um, it's all self-preservation and, you know, trying to satisfy his own needs at the expense of this woman, at this well, vulnerable woman. Well, let me just say about the Clementine, because the I, I, the thing that bothers me about Clementines is that in the, the 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 stance of the movie itself, of the storyteller itself, is that you need to accept this person's flaws, and that is not at all the stance of the movie toward Michael. I mean. He's by the end. It's it's very clear that that he's not a good person, and that the movie doesn't think he's a good person. So, like you know, if the movie's not trying to convince me a bad person isn't so bad, that's a completely different. You know, I feel completely differently about that. Okay. Um, but I want to get Tom in here too. So, Tom, what do you think of this movie? I really liked it. As a, I didn't really like it. It's not one of my you know favorite movies or anything. But I I was very much entertained by it as a just kind of a window into, I mean, you say narcissist, I almost think maybe sociopath. Um, he doesn't, I think it goes beyond depression in this case. I think the guy watching him, you know, at first you don't, you're like, did they just use the same actor's voice to be this other person too? And then you're like, oh no. Yeah, that's it took me an embarrassingly long time to, yeah. to notice that. <laughs> that all, all me day. too. And that, well, it, part of it's because they're puppets, right? You're like, oh, these puppets yeah. all kind of look the same. And then you're like, oh no, they're supposed to look the same. They're, they all have exactly the same face on purpose. They're making a point with this. And um, I don't know. I, I really like, like, the more I watched it, the more I was like, you know, I just, just when Andrea was talking, I was thinking about that guy who, um, or anybody who shoots up a crowd, who, who just, like, takes a gun and starts shooting a crowd. And after it happens, you think, how in the hell can somebody do that? Like, they don't know these people. They don't. They don't like, I don't understand like what gets somebody and I don't ever want to, I don't ever want to go into that person's mind and figure, oh, that's why you did it. Um, but on the other hand, like you're, there's always like a kind of a like puzzle of like, why the hell would somebody do something like that? And when you watch this movie, it's almost like an explanation of like, 
because they don't see people as people. They mm-hmm. see them as like a bunch of robots who are like part of their problem and not, not as individual people. So I don't mean to laugh. I'm laughing because I'm really uncomfortable with that mm-hmm. concept. But, but I mean, you, you look at this guy and you think, oh, everybody to him is just like, you know, they're talking to him and they're irritating. Like, it's funny at first because like the, you know, the cab driver is like obviously just trying to work for a tip. And so he's like making small talk and the guy's like, shut up with the small talk. And then the guy in the elevator, like the bellboy is like making small talk, trying to angle for a tip. And it's, it's funny because they don't really, they don't see him as really a person either. But then as it moves on, you realize, no, this guy has it a lot deeper. And, uh, it, it kind of explained to me also like people who get into a relationship really fast and then realize it sucks mm. and like that, like shallowness of like finding somebody getting same kind of theme as, as eternal sunshine and same kind of theme as being John Malkovich, right? When John Cusack meets the, the femme fatale and he's like, Oh, she's everything. And you're like, as an objective observer, you're like, no, she has nothing. And you have not, you guys have nothing in common. Forget it. It's not, there's no point in you pursuing her. Why are you after her? You're just going after your biology. You're going after like, you're, you're letting your pants direct you. And, and this movie I felt was a really good explanation. It was like a fascinating explanation of that kind of infatuation that starts out as like, this person is everything to me because they're so different from all these other boring people. But then when he gets to know her a little bit, he's like, no, she has flaws. She's just like everyone else. And then you see how hurt she is. And it's like, that is real. That to me, he's saying something yeah. very real about life. And that just hit me in the gut and was like, well, that is that is just true. And that's one thing I really liked about that is that I found the dialogue, the naturalistic dialogue, so believable and so well done. You know, particularly, in, and, and I love um, being John Malkovich and adaptation, but they're sort of screwball comedies with totally over-the-top characters and um, you know, like I said, Eternal Sunshine Spot was mine. I, I wasn't too enamored with the characters. I mean, I guess I'm, well, but I mean, I mean, but it's this, I don't know, just like the way the characters talk to each other just felt real to me, like in a way that Charlie Kaufman's other movies felt a little more sort of mannered or sort yeah, of exaggerated. I will, I will say that I thought the dialogue was very realistic in this. And I think like from a creative point of view, the film is incredibly inventive. You know, I, I don't think I've been, I've seen anything quite like this. I, I don't know if I've ever seen like a stop motion film about a depressed middle-aged man in a hotel. Like <laughs> it, it was, it was just something really unique about it. I, uh, for me, it was just, um, it, it wasn't a, a, like a headspace that I was comfortable or enjoyed being like, like experiencing. And, and it's just, it was like, there were just these long periods of just nothing happening. And I, and I just, I was like, I, this is not, this is not why I watch film. This is mm. not why I watch a movie. That's, that's actually, I'll explain. So this was originally a stage play with mm. just voices. You know, it's just the actors sitting in chairs reciting their lines. And I think it was like, I think they, they added stuff to pad it out to feature length. So maybe that's part of what you're picking up. I mean, I, I, I thought the pacing was fine, but I, I wouldn't, I I wouldn't necessarily disagree that maybe, you know, it's a little slow, but, um, but maybe that's why. It it was very evident that it was a play, um, just from the, the dialogue. I, it, it also, um, I'm thinking of ending this also is very 
play-like in that oh, it mostly one. relies oh, yeah. on dialogue, people talking. Yes. Um, but yeah, I don't. I, I I I the reality of the dialogue was such that, like you know, I I'm talking about him being a creepy narcissist who you know, takes advantage of vulnerable women. I was in like a very, I knew I dated someone who was very similar to this in a way. And when he's reading the letter she sent him where she's just, you know, screaming, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Right. I have written that email. (laughs) I wrote that email and then um, watching him trying to squirm out of what he did also happened to me. So it's, uh, it was you know, it was a very personal kick in the gut watching this. Um, you know, it's hard to watch somebody that awful and not just want to turn the, the you know, want to stop watching. Right. Uh, but I, I want to talk about, I, I thought this was, so there's a section in about two thirds through the movie where you think it's turning into a science fiction movie where, right. you know, all the, um, you know, he, he goes down to like the manager's office or something and the manager says, we're all sort of this hive mind and we're in love with you. And, you know, you can pick any any of us, you know, just not Lisa, anyone but Lisa. And I feel like it's sort of like an anti, like, I'm sure there's a lot of movies like this. The one that comes to mind is this movie called The Adjustment Bureau. Yeah. Where, um, like, like it's like Matt Damon um, and he like meets this woman and they fall in love, but then there's like this shadowy conspiracy that controls everything in the world, like supernaturally. So uh, that's like, you can't be with her and and they have to run away and it's like a thriller, you know? And so I felt like Charlie Kaufman was like, yeah, you know, sort of, I'm going to show you that. I thought of that, but that's stupid. We're not fucking doing that. And that just turns out to be a dream. And then we go in a, a different direction, but that it's like sort of having fun with this idea of like, Oh, these two people who are destined to be together and the whole, there's this whole world is trying to keep them apart, you know, maybe make a good commentary on how narcissistic or silly or Mm. romantic, you know, sappily romantic or something, those kinds of stories are, and that we sort of have this detour into that kind of story and then pull back and go in a, in a different direction. Mm. I thought it was also commenting on how like monomaniacal his obsession was. It was just like, you know, he, he could have anybody, but he had to have her, no, no, no one, else, but he had just met her. Like he didn't know anything about her. And, um, yeah. And he just had, he had a wife and had, a, had, a, has a son that he's estranged from. It just, I don't know. I just, I had a really hard time, um, watching him on screen. You know, I, I thought, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee did an amazing job, uh, with like as you said the dialogue and, and the acting here i mean it was just just the her her reactions and her her sort of um obsession with him that just kind of turns to disillusionment i i i thought that part worked very well did you guys notice the doll thing Can you, doll? you're talking about the the asian doll yeah, the Japanese sex doll. Yeah, yeah. Can, can yeah? What a, can you explain that? I, I, I didn't really pick up on this watching it, but I just watched some YouTube videos, and there's a lot of weird parallels between Lisa and the Japanese sex doll. Like the biggest one being that she has like scarring around her right eye, oh, wow. and the Japanese doll has like a hole around its right eye. Huh. And oh. yeah, is that uh, supposed to so, signify something? 
Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, so so you could interpret that either as just like the filmmaker is putting in these thematic connections, or it's possible that he just went to the hotel and had sex with the Japanese sex doll, and all the stuff <laughs> about Lisa is just in his imagination. Oh my God. Um, I don't know. I don't know quite what to make of it at this point. But Al- I think although, it's definitely not. although when she brings the doll home, you don't see it, but his wife says. Is that semen coming out of its mouth? Yeah. yeah. So maybe he did. Oh my god, that's oh. hor- That's horrible. That's even worse. Oof. He gives it to his kid. Yeah. Yeah. It just. Yeah. Uh. But the thing that's weird about that is, so the last scene is like Lisa writing him. She's driving in a car mm-hmm. with her friend Emily, and she's writing a letter based that's sort of like weirdly. Um. Uh, what's the word? Uh, you know, like like positive or yeah. Uh, you know, making up with him or you know, ho- expressing hope for the future and stuff. And then we see that Emily has an actual face, um, yeah. like how we saw her in- earlier. Well, that and so I love that. I love that because it kind of shows that the because uh, I was wondering up until that point, is this all in in his head or is it, and, and it or is everybody really just robots or is this his problem or? And that shows you that objectively, no, everybody else in the world is their own person. And Lisa's going to go on to have a good life, but he's kind of damned inside of his narcissism. Yeah, which is how I interpreted the first when I watched it. But then if she's just part of his imagination, then that kind of calls that into question. Because why would he be imagining Emily with a face if this whole thing right. is just something he's imagining? So right. I, I'm a little I'm a little confused at this point. But. No, I, I th- I'm saying I thought that scene shows you that it's not all in his imagination. That it that it's everybody else. Everybody else is is individuals, and he's got this massive problem. Right, but what I'm saying, if you buy the sex doll it was all just oh, a yeah. sex doll theory right then that that causes problems yeah with that. right right so i don't know maybe it might just be a bunch of like stuff that's designed to be you know it's intentionally weird to make you <laughs> question and wonder and there's not a pat um explanation for it mm. well i think it's it a lot of it's intentionally obscure open inter open to individual interpretation mm-hmm like it, a lot of this, that the you know, uh, Anna Melissa and I'm thinking of ending things reminds me a lot of the uh, new wave movies from the '60s and art art house films. Um, I got dragged to a lot when I was a kid. Literally, a like seven eight year old child <laughs> dragged to these movies, um, which is why I do not have good uh, reactions uh, to by, by your parents, by my uncle and his girlfriend. Um, okay. uh, I have no idea why you would bring a child to, you know, Jules and Jim, but there I was. Um, and so I, I think looking through the lens of that for me, I, that, I think that's a lot why I don't like, why I didn't enjoy these movies. Um, you know, I, I like a linear story, <laughs> um, and leaving me guessing and leaving it open, you know, every movie, every piece of art is open to interpretation. Once, once it goes out into the world, everybody sees it in a different way. Um, but I think this was a little too art house for me. Um, I, I recognize that they're both beautiful, well-made, well-written movies, but, but, uh, it, the bleakness is just, I can't, hmm. I just can't. 
Yeah, well, it was interesting to me how much, you know, I liked Anomalies and, and didn't really like I'm Thinking of Ending Things when objectively the same criticisms yeah. you know, could be applied equally to both of them. It's just for whatever reason, one of them hit my sensibility and the other didn't. Um, but yeah, but we're, we're pretty much out of time. So I think we're going to have to get into, start wrapping this up a little bit, but, um, I don't know. What do we think about, I don't know about Charlie Kaufman's, uh, Oeuvre? well about, yeah, about this. I mean, it, it's, it seems that, you know, he sort of went from making movies that were a lot funnier to movies that are a lot more existentially grim. Yeah. I mean, we didn't even, we, one of them we didn't talk about was Synecdoche, New York, but that's another like make you want to kill yourself oh, for gosh. sure kind of movie. Um, so, but again, like, and I don't know, maybe this is just like, he would have been making movies like this the whole time. And it's just Spike Jones and Michelle Gondry and so on, you know, steered him like, in a better direction. Yeah. Like apparently, um, I, I came across a quote somewhere where, where it said, you know, a lot of Kaufman fans consider eternal sunshine of the spotless mind sort of, um, you know, uh, compromised by producers who wanted to make it more of a love story um you know when he wanted it to be more depressing i guess i don't know so um that might be oh wait here's the thing it says uh uh, Eternal Sunshine, which I used to rank below Synecdoche, offers no such excuse. Interestingly, some Kaufman purists dismiss the film as a cop-out, the result of producers diluting his honesty with a hint of Nicholas Sparks-style romance to make it more palatable. So, it's again, it's possible that, you know, the balance that we, or that, you know, that mainstream audiences sort of connected with was always the result of him having to compromise his vision. I mean, you can, uh, you, can you know, drink really good scotch like Glenmorangie or whatever you can drink it straight or you can drink it with water and a lot of people prefer it a little bit diluted and I think I prefer if that's true that that eternal sunshine is diluted I think I prefer my Kaufman diluted um I don't like it straight so I mean I I think he I I do think he's got a brilliant having watched all of these movies together I do think he's if this can be my final thought I do think he has a brilliant um, view into the problem with the human condition and with consciousness. And I think he lays it out really well in a way that it's like, look, you know, we all have these desires. We all want to be happy, but we shoot ourselves in the foot by selfishly going after our own happiness and avoiding the idea that other people have a right to their happiness also. And that if you can just accept other people with their flaws, and I think his movies explore that in different ways in terms of like somebody who does accept people with their flaws, somebody who can't, somebody who refuses to, somebody who just decides, screw everybody else. I'm going to, I don't care if I possess John Malkovich for the rest of his life um, or, or, you know, or a kid, like breed a kid to do that. It's the, it's the same theme over and over again, that being a person you can make yourself absolutely miserable by trying to be happy. I, I mean, I think a lot of a big reason why people like to watch movies, me personally, is escape. You know, mm-hmm. um, we get, we get away from the day to day grind and we watch something where we get fully immersed in it. And yeah, sometimes we watch bleak things. I mean, um, uh, you know, there there's plenty of shows that like um 
uh, why am I blanking on the name? Uh, the the one about the fungus, the HBO show. Um, last, last of us one? last of us thank you sorry like you know that that's a bleak show like these post-apocalyptic things are bleak station 11 was an hbo series it's bleak but there but i, I also feel like there's something uh ultimately like kind of a, a hope with it within that stuff yeah and and i think that's why the why they work and then for example like um, I'm thinking of ending things doesn't work for me. It's, it's the hopelessness. And yeah, there like I've seen horror movies that just end in like a scary hopelessness note, but it's it's like a fantasy and you know it's not real. And and I think that what uh at least for me, Anomalisa, and I'm thinking of ending things, why I don't like these films is um A, I'm not immersed because it's it it well, I th- I'm thinking of ending things. I was immersed for most of it, but then I, I began to feel that like it was dragging. It was dragging. Um, but also it's just like, keeps reflecting back to you, the bleakness of your own life. Look how bleak your life is. Look, 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 you know, look how bleak life can be. Look how horrible things can be. And there's no, like, there's not even like a glimmer of hope in it. And, and that's like, that's for me, that's not an enjoyable experience for others. They might say, well, it's, you know, it's it's an art film. It's it's very creative, and I accept that. I think that both of those two films were incredibly creative and beautifully shot and beautifully done. But it's not an experience I enjoy having when I'm watching a film. That is my personal taste. Eternal Sunshine, on the other hand, I thought was exactly the kind of experience I'm going for. It's like reflecting back to me, the viewer, what it's like to be a human being with both the beautiful things and the horrible things, you know, both the ha- the joy and the suffering and, and being okay with both sides of that. That's why I think the movie is so beautiful. Well, yeah, I mean, and I, I saw, you know, Charlie Kaufman say in interviews, you know, that like, you know, everyone's going to die. Everyone, you know, is going to die. You're going to die. You're going to lose everything. And that's how life ultimately ends. And he wants to be honest about that. And, you know, that's like fair enough, but I mean, like, and all that's true, obviously, but it's also like all of us are incredibly lucky, you know, to ever have been born at all. You know, when you think about how statistically uh, unlikely it is that any of us would ever have been born and be alive to experience grass and oceans and sunsets and freaking everything, you know, and so like, yeah, I feel like fixating on the negative is a uh, is not necessarily being honest. It's mm-hmm. it is sort of um, shading things in a particular direction uh, in a sense it go- to do. in a in a sense it's going against his own message right because like in eternal sunshine it's like accepting the good and the bad and and i think in the later movies it's just bad just bad well that's what i'm mm-hmm. saying like it's it's fully giving yourself over to the the viewpoint of depression accepting that you know the depression tells you it's all terrible it's all going to end badly why even try and that and those two movies completely buy into that message of depression of don't even bother it's just all terrible and you just can't live on a on a diet of pure bleakness like nobody wants to be there um you know and i personally like i can't like i can't do that you know i at this point in my life i i actively avoid movies that I know are going to upset me because I just, mm-hmm. you know, when I was 25, yeah, I could get into a movie that was bleak 
Um, you know, one of my favorite movies is um, Children of Men, which is exceptionally bleak. Um, but at this point. But it's also hopeful. I mean. It is hopeful. Yes, it does end on a note of hope. Um, none of the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Anomalisa and uh, I'm thinking of ending things. There is no hope. It is just darkness. And I don't believe that that's truth. And I think that was what all of us have been saying. Like, that is not the whole truth. That is the that is the lie of depression. And you have to, you can't do that. Because what's the point of doing anything when it's all bleakness? Yeah, well, so the next movie that Charlie Kaufman was screenwriter for is called Orion in the Dark 2024. And it's based on a children's book. And it's about a kid who learns to overcome his fear. So right. it will be interesting to see if that makes you want to kill yourself or not. God, I hope you not. would think you would almost have to not. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we'll see. Um, but I, I do think it's interesting that, you know, usually we talk about five movies and this time we only talked about four and still had way more to say about yeah. them than we have to say usually. So I mean, even even if we didn't love all these movies, uh, you know, they are certainly thought provoking and, oh, and yeah. make you want to express your feelings about them. Um, but yeah, so why don't we wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with Andrea Kale, Matthew Kressel, and Tom Gerenser. So thanks everyone so much for joining us. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Dave. Thanks. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Andrea Kale, Matthew Kressel, and Tom Gerenser for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com slash geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.